Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are uh, in for a a very exciting night. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, uh, Jim Hansen, who serves on our advisory panel, has really gone to great lengths uh, to put this whole summit together. And we're in his backyard. And uh, so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to have a special conversation between uh, Jim and Robert Trent Jones, Jr. Uh, And for me, it's a special night. As a, as a kid growing up, all I ever wanted to do was design golf courses. And so uh, when I was in college, I reached out to all sorts of golf architects. And I was lucky enough to head out to California and work for Robert Trent Jones Jr. for 11 years. And I can tell you that during that time, uh, I got exposed to more things than you could ever imagine. You know, we work out of an old house in, in Palo Alto, and down in the basement were these uh, tubes of files of all these old golf courses all over the world, right? And so there were all these plans and maps, not only of uh, Bobby's work, but, but also stuff from his dad. And so for a 22-year-old kid, you know, this was the greatest library on earth. And so over those 11 years, I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with Bobby uh, in the office and on the road and got to hear all these amazing stories about uh, his life in golf and growing up uh, with his father. And so uh, we are all so lucky tonight to be able to uh, you guys are going to get that same experience to hear about uh, his life in golf and, and his time with his dad. So uh, I, I just couldn't be more thrilled and honored to introduce Jim Hansen and Robert Trent Jones, Jr. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, one of the great honors and privileges of my life has been to, to do two biographies uh, that I'm very, very proud of. Uh, doing the biography of Robert Trent Jones Sr. was an incredible experience for me, not only because I got to spend so much time with, with Bob and his brother, Reese. Uh, Mr. Jones passed away in the year 2000. I'd actually tried to get the book started before he died, and it didn't, didn't work out, and it worked out a few years later. But I've done Robert Trent Jones' biography, uh, and I've done Neil Armstrong's biography. I'm Neil's, I was Neil's only person that Neil ever agreed to work with. And so I wrote a book called First Man, which was made into a halfway decent film um, with Ryan Gosling playing Neil Armstrong. So I got to at least get to know Ryan a little bit. But it was really a privilege. And what was remarkable about, about the project for me, besides getting to know these people, was that all of the papers of, the, of Mr. Jones's 70-year career in golf, from 1930 when he started till 2000 when he died, all those papers were, were made available to me, and, and nothing had been called through, nothing had been destroyed, which is quite exceptional in a corporate environment. Most time you go to a corporate archives and, 
and the lawyers have been so worried that there's maybe some something in the papers that could expose them to lawsuits or something. But there was everything. Everything, his, his active files were made available. They're now at the University of, uh, Cornell University's archives. Um, so I thought you would enjoy hearing um, my interview style and, and especially uh, Bob's uh, responses to him. I have a slide that sort of reflects uh, the question in every case. Uh, so I have, here's Bob and, and uh, his dad. Yeah, this is at Spyglass, not Spyglass, but it is, Spyglass, uh, is it Spyglass? Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was that or Spanish Bay. Oh, you're right. It's yeah, Spanish Bay. It is Spanish I, I Bay, your, I think. Your yeah. picture's <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's, hopefully they're, they're, you can see them pretty well from there. We didn't have a perfect setup for him, for Bob to see the pictures well. And the first question I have for you, Bob, is, you know, your father over the course of his career received a lot of accolades and a lot of awards and, and, and things. What would, if your father was with us here tonight, how, what would he have to say to us and how would he regard this recognition coming, you know, um, 21 years after his death? Well, first of all, th Jim, thank you for your kind words and thank you, Jay, and thank you, Bobby, for, and thank you all for hanging out today on the golf course and getting to know each and every one of you. Um, I, you know, I'm a, I can't put words in my father's mouth. He was pretty good at, at words anyway. Uh, I think that he was a very warm person, and he did receive many honors, as you mentioned. And he was always, uh, you know, right with you. And he would be very flattered and pleased that Golf Week has recognized his work and enjoyed, basically enjoy his company. I think that um, there's a kind of, I think I, I'm trying to remember... Um, I think it was Christopher Wren or somebody who did the great uh, cathedrals in London when asked how someone would feel after he died, he said, look around and see my legacy. So I think he would say, look around and play my legacy. And uh, Golf Week, and you're all doing that and hopefully enjoying it. I know he'd be, be flattered. This is a picture of your dad as a boy uh, and his family, his mother and father, his younger brother, immigrating to the United States in April 1912. Their ship sailed, as, according to my research, just a couple of weeks after the Titanic sank. And I can just imagine the trepidation of getting on an ocean vessel in England heading toward the United States, you know, and knowing that the Titanic had just sank. Uh, but there they are. And, and uh, wh what do you have to say about uh, your dad and the immigration? I sort of see the whole story of your father as an American dream story. And this is an immigrant coming to the United States, not a wealthy family. You know, your, his father was a, car, was a carpenter. Um, and so what would you like to tell us about your father in terms of his immigration experience? Well, he, my dad was a great salesman, as you mentioned before. And he, could, he could exaggerate occasionally. And some of the stories, <laughs> so, some of the stories got a little better. I think he was on, the, on, a, on a ship that followed six weeks after Titanic, but I got the impression they were helping pick up survivors from the Lucid. <laughs> 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 um, in any event, uh, yeah, my grandfather, Reese Jones, was Welsh from Aberwithwith. My grandmother, Anne Southern, was from um, uh, Ince, England, which is near uh, Liverpool. And they met and married and had two children. And... It was 1912, and, and the workforce in Europe was bad. It was almost World War I time. And so he made the decision to come to, the, to America. Uh, like many other Northern European peoples, they were welcomed. 
he was a carpenter. He, my grandfather, he worked in a, in a carpenter shop helping build railroad cars. I hear railroad cars going by here all the time. And every time I hear a railroad car, I think of my grandfather, Reese Jones. Um, and it was, you know, they, they, the way the English families and Welch families worked, then the, everybody worked. My father had a paper route and his brother too, and they would bring home whatever money and give it to their mother. And the, the, uh, her husband did the same with his paycheck, and she would go do the shopping and watch out over the household. So it was a family, tight family, knit family. They end up settling in East Rochester, and I found through my research in terms of your father's boyhood that, I mean, in retrospect, why, was, why did it turn out for East Rochester to be so significant to his life and to his interest in golf? What was special about East Rochester in particular, and what did your father get? How did that passion develop there? Um, East Rochester was more of a working-class neighborhood suburb of Rochester, but Rochester was an extraordinarily wealthy town on Lake Erie, and um, and I think it was Lake Erie, but it was, uh, anyway, it was, uh, the, the point is that there was a lot of commerce in those upper Great Lakes at that time, and New York State, of course, was the leading state commercially, New York City, but the whole state was, and uh, the, uh, Eastman and Kodak, uh, George Eastman, who of Eastman Kodak was there, and he got to know people in East Rochester, rubbing school, uh, shoulders in school, playing sports in school, of laboring class people, but they were all welcoming and warm. And uh, I don't know that he really was that comfortable about East Rochester per se, other than it was an extremely good American uh, town that he grew up in. But what about, was there anything special about East Rochester as a golfing community oh, at the yeah. time? Well, <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, nearby, of course, uh, there was se there were several golf courses. You, 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 Jim, you're the historian. You would even know better than me. Was it uh, Rochester Country Club in East Rochester? Rochester Country Club I was in East Rochester. Yeah. And so, you want me to tell that anecdote? All right. So my dad was uh, looking for money uh, as the family wanted. Paper roots. He was in the sixth grade, and. Uh, he uh, was pulling the tails, the pigtails of the girl in front and the seat in front of him in school, and he was getting chastised by the teacher all the time, and she was upset. And finally, she turned to him and said, "Listen," uh, and he was called Bob at that time, or Bobby. And um, he said, uh, "I can get you a better job than what you're doing, and you get more money. And you're going to be outside, and it's a sport if you just stop pulling my pigtails." And he said, "Okay." So he, she, he said, get a dime from your mother, go to the end of the railroad line, the trolley line, and walk a mile up this place, this big house, and go back in the, in the back and walk into some, uh, the back shop there and ask for my uncle. And he'll get you a job, which will make, pay you a lot more than a paper boy. So he went up and he did, and he did exactly that. He walked in, and, and he's in a, basically a golf shop at the Rochester Country Club. And he turned and he was there looking up at a 12 years old boy and uh, said, uh, I'm here because I'm the, oh, you're the, and the golf professional said, you're the, you're the young man that's pulling the pigtails of my niece, aren't you? And now he's frightened and he's going to not get the job. And he said, if you'll just pl keep pulling your pigtails, you can be a caddy here. And that man was Walter Hagen. <laughs> so they had a mischievous beginning. So we've also got in this slide a picture of Donald Ross, 
And it's my recollection from my research in the book that your father, as a boy, saw Donna Ross making Oak, building Oak Hill. Do, do you remember anything that from your father talking about? So that's the first time that he saw a, an ar, a real architect at work designing a golf course? He, he said that. And, and uh, as I said, he could exaggerate. It might have been later in life, but um, he... Was a, he was ambitious. My father was very ambitious, um, not only to earn some money to, it, uh, for the family, but also to play golf. So first of all, as a caddy, he could play on Monday mornings, uh, as most of the golf courses allowed their, their help and caddies to play. And he became quite good. You could see from his swing, he got a good swing. And he won a caddy tournament, and he, they gave him one club. He chose a one iron because he could putt with it as well. And anyway, so he was considering golf as a profession of some sort. But he noticed that when Donald Ross came to visit the Rochester Country Club as a golf artist, he walked in the front door. But when Walter Hagen came, he went in the back door. My dad didn't like that. So he was socially ambitious, and it stuck with him. Tell us a little bit more about your dad as a golfer. I mean, he was not just an average good golfer. He was really an excellent golfer. He won tournaments. Uh, why didn't he? Why didn't he play professional? He actually played in a couple of professional events. He played in the Canadian Open one year. He uh, in the what Open. happened? What happened that he chose not to go that direction? You, Jim, probably have researched this better than me. But my the family stories are that uh, again he he was very bright and quick, and because he was caddying for people like George Eastman, he noticed that the caddies would. Um, he told, in, in those days, the courses were not very well kept up, especially in the rough. They were really high fescue grasses and nothing like the manicured courses of today. And uh, they, if, he hit a, if George Eastman hit a golf ball in the high ref, he would give hold of a dime and say, to the boy who could find the ball, and it would roll until I felt the ball, pick it up, and then they would give it away. Well, my dad did that for a while, and then he realized that the ball was worth a dollar, so he'd find it and say, I'm sorry, Mr. Eastman, can't find it, mark it. And after the match, he'd go back and get it. So he was always thinking uh, entrepreneurially, even as a caddy. Um, but he, he also was very bright. And eventually, he won a tournament uh, and, and had some other success in the, I think, Rochester Open, which had amateurs and professionals and, and just anybody. It was open to any player. And that distinguished him. And so they... People were asking him if he wanted to be a golf professional. And he did actually want to be one. So uh, he, he won this tournament, and they sort of made him, at Sotus Bay, as I remember, the golf professional, the greenskeeper, and just kind of general manager. All in one, one yeah, that's the, next, that's the next slide. Uh, okay. I think I, yeah, here you see Sotus Bay Heights on Lake Ontario in upstate New York. In August 1925, at age 19, uh, your dad had enough reputation as a golfer to be invited to play an exhibition match for the opening day of the Soda Spay Heights Golf Club, um, which had just been established as a nine-hole course. Uh, and after that match, the club offered him exactly what you just described, a job as club professional, greenkeeper, and manager all in one. Uh, how did that position at Sotus Bay become so important to him really pretty quickly in terms of some of the people that met him that helped him up to the next step of his career? Well, this is this era was way way before social media, way before iPhones, way before anything. So a 
golf club was a social meeting place, and of course the rich of that community were there, and they had people who worked for them. But the, but being America, there was a less line drawn between the exchanges, and uh, and he got to know some of them, and they realized he, he was quite bright, and uh, not just a, a guy that wanted a job to make a living to help his family. Um, so they one one man, uh, Mr. Beresford, was a graduate of Cornell University. And although my father had not actually uh, finished high school, he was working, uh, he kind of offered him the opportunity to go to Cornell University. You might say it was on a personal scholarship. There, wasn't, there weren't scholarships offered for anything in, in Cornell at that time. Cornell University, as Jim can explain because he's a professor and knows all this, is a state university and a liberal arts university. Maybe you can explain that, Jim, what, what that means. Well, yeah, my understanding is that one of the members at Sotus Bay uh, who had, was a Cornell graduate and had connections with the school uh, approached the dean, a couple of the deans, the dean of agriculture and the dean of engineering at Cornell, and talked, told them about your dad and that he had a goal to become a golf course architect. He had not received a high school diploma, uh, and so to get admitted to an Ivy League school was a pretty special thing. So they admitted him to take special courses, you know, to take courses he thought he would need to have, you know, agronomy courses, civil engineering courses, speech was one of them he talked, you know, and he had to, you know, the marketeer, he had some speech training. Here you can see him, he actually got um, to be a member of uh, one of the fraternities. So he was considered one of the guys. I'm not sure, I sometimes speculated in looking at this group picture, I wonder if his fellow students actually knew about his special status at Cornell. I don't think your dad would necessarily go around telling people that he's there under these conditions. Uh, they just treated him like one of the other one of the other fellows. So the, 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 that was a period where the Greek houses, the fraternities, were where it's where you lived, and they were almost they were separate entities from the university itself. There were there were people who were at the university, but they they functioned in their own way, independent of the university. So the, Mr. Beresford was a member of Delta Kappa Epsilon, and so he got him a place to stay. Mr. Beresford, in effect, funded my father's education and his tuition and residency while he studied these special courses. So in the academic times, and please, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, but, or add anything you want. Uh, at, at that time, when you went to a Ivy League school, which Cornell was, or any other legitimate institution, you, they would offer you, do you want to study arts or engineering? And he said, neither one. And they were upset. And they, the, the, the person matriculating him was not, not on, what do you mean? Well, what, what do you want to work toward a degree? He said, I don't want a degree. I want knowledge. And I said, I want to take a, a course in agriculture and turf man, and manager, something like that, let's say, ag, ag, uh, from the ag, ag school. And I want to take public speaking from the arts school. And so he had his own program in his own head of what he needed to do to become a golf architect. In other words, he actually defined what we now call golf architecture before it was defined as a profession. And uh, that's, that's what he did. And they said, well, you can't get a degree. And he said, he said, it's of no importance to me. I want to get the knowledge. Perhaps the most important person in getting your dad into the golf course design business was the Canadian golf course architect Stanley Thompson. 
himself from a pretty famous family of Thompsons. Um, tell the audience a little bit about Stanley Thompson and why Thompson was so important in getting your father started in the golf course development business, especially in the rather flexible way that he, he did it. And of course, you, you told me that Thompson actually came to your home a few times in the, in the oh, 1940s. Yeah, I'll tell that anecdote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell, tell well, us, well, Stanley actually, Thompson actually, is one Jim, of the great you, Canadian I, architects, by yeah, the way, yeah, if you, you haven't played You should speak more about Stanley Thompson. I know you've studied him, you've given talks about him. Yeah. I really only met him as a boy and hearing family stories. But why don't you tell more about Stanley Thompson? I'll pick up from there. Well, Thompson... Um, there was a course that Thompson was developing uh, outside of East Rochester that became Midvale Country Club. I'm not sure has anybody ever played Midvale. It's not it's a nice course. It's, it's considered Jones's um, Jones Senior's first course, but it was actually a, a, a course that that Thompson had the contract for. And he and but he was pretty busy with his jobs. He was doing mostly his work in Canada, and so he 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 in was it, he was introduced to this young. Jones, who wanted to get into golf course development, golf course design, and they had a meeting, and Thompson kind of quizzed him a bit, and they looked at the property, and, and Thompson thought, well, I'm going to bring this fellow on to, to help. And it, it, it turned out pretty quickly that Thompson realized that this Jones fellow really knew some stuff, and basically he turned over the work, to, uh, the design for Midvale, largely to Bob. Uh, to Trent, uh, and and uh, um, that resulted in a in a, uh, a a company called Thompson and Jones Inc., uh, where through the early 30s into the later 30s they did a lot of courses together. Um, so, so add add some so, so the Thompson family were a family of golf avid people, including golf professionals. Um, one of them was one of the long ball hitters in Canada. They were Canadian, and, and, and they lived in Toronto, where our daughter lives currently, when, and her family. And, and Toronto is right across the lake from Rochester. So it was an easy boat ride across uh, to communicate with each other. So they had the golfing community of Upper New York State and, and Canada were inter, interrelated um, at that time. So it was a more of an economic imperative. As you mentioned, Jim, it was in the early 1930s. The Great Depression had set in. Yep. And Stanley Thompson thought maybe this young man, because he lived in New York State, could stir up some jobs for him. And therefore, they, it was kind of a, an alliance of convenience more than it was a professional alliance because both of them were suffering and both of them were struggling to find work of any kind. Yeah, say a little bit more, if you would, about the struggles that your father would have faced in 19... I mean, here he is trying to become a golf course designer in 1930. I mean, it's like the worst possible time you could try to do it. Uh, and, you know, the, I have one of the materials that I had for the book were the love letters that your father and wrote to, you know, your mother. I'm going to show you a picture of, of her in just a second. But he talked a lot about the struggles. I mean, where sometimes he didn't have enough money for more than a dollar or two of gasoline, you know. He, he maybe could only eat one or maybe two meals a day. He, it was really a pretty hard time for him. Did he talk much about that when you uh, were boys? Y yes and no. Um, he did not want to... Remember, he's dealing with the elite of business, and um, they were established people. And my father wanted to be with them or be part of their team, did not want to be seen as someone um, who needed to socially, uh, he wanted to be their equal, basically. And so he didn't always tell the whole story. 
uh, even in later life, of what how he felt. He didn't talk too much about the difficulty of that. Uh, you, you're a historian. You dug into the letters, so they speak for themselves. Um, but my mother went to Wells College, which was a small women's college. She was, she, and we'll talk when you want about that. There you go. Uh, and they were near. That was near Ithaca, where my dad was. Yeah, um, I wanted to make sure we. we one, one interesting thing about your dad's career is that he's struggling. He's struggling. You know, into 1931, 32, 33, 32 is the election of Franklin Roosevelt. The New Deal programs come along. The state of New York is very active in New Deal progressive legislation, creating civil works, civil projects, w, WPA, kind of CCC stuff. Your dad actually does some, in a, in a sense, I, I think one could almost say he was able to survive because the government programs came in at that particular time right. and invested in some, in, I mean, just like park development or highway development, they were also helping to support the development of golf courses. So your dad, the early part of his career, he was lifted up by that government support. Yeah, I, I think that you're nail, you've nailed it, Jim. That was the most significant, um, the CCC and the WPA and the parks emphasis on it in my personal opinion, it was maybe Roosevelt's greatest decision. And, I, and, and he was a New Yorker, so he, he tried it out in upper, upstate New York. And my dad was able to persuade people in Rochester that he had gone to Cornell to study parks development and, and get a bureaucrat essentially to hire him, but no, not until he could embarrass him in the newspaper uh, through a friend of his who said this golf course, they don't know what they're doing sort of thing. Anyway, it was, it was very hardcore times. But if you think about WPA and CCC labor, they built many of the great parks and their lodges throughout the entire nation. Even in Kauai, Hawaii, there's one that's there now, and that was a territory, not a state even. So the federal government was doing something very significant. They were funding people to go back to work who were destitute, but they were doing it in a parks way. Now, why is this significant? As, and I'm an American studies major, so they took these people who were not prepared for war, and they literally put them in work camps, building things, and when World War I came, came, they were ready, they, were, they had been trained by living together as men in work camps for a whole decade. So we were a lot more prepared for World War II on the German, against the Germans and the, and the fascists than, than people realized due to CCC camps. But in the meantime, they were building parks, and uh, it was a very physical and hard labor. Yeah. That picture in the bottom right is a CCC group at work on a construction of a, a golf course. Uh, this is the picture of your mother again, um, Ione. Uh, I want to say a few things and have you respond. Uh, Ione Tef Davis, uh, she came from a pretty well-to-do New York City suburban family. Her father was an executive with New York Bell Telephone. So she had a pretty nice background. Your father was blue-collar background. Uh, their courtship, from I, what I can tell in the love letters between them, and there's over, I don't know, 200 or so love letters that I, I was able to look at, the courtship was very difficult, and, and it was like her father, Ion's father, did not want her, his precious little daughter to marry this Jones fellow who was built, designing golf courses of all things, and it was like he wouldn't give permission to his daughter to be married until your father could prove that he could actually make a living off of his job. And so, and it wasn't your, and, and your uh, 
Howard B. Davis was his right. name, yeah. and he was kind of a conservative Republican from what I can tell, and wasn't all that fond of the New Deal programs, and what really kind of put him over the put him over to the side of, well, okay, we can, I can support this marriage, was that your father got the contract, I think, to do the Colgate course. And, th and so that meant more to him than the, f than the federal relief pro projects. Right. But what, what do you know about that particular history? A lot of us don't well, know a whole lot about our parents and their courtship. It, it, it doesn't take on the 1930s political connotation as you see it at all, yeah. in my opinion. My mother was a thought, my, mother, my mother's family goes straight back to the Mayflower. I mean, she is as American as you can get. Uh, the, and my, my great-grandfather was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. They were really establishment people in the New York State and New York City sense of that. And um, my uh, niece is named Alden for John and Priscilla Alden. You speak for yourself. You know, this is straight Mayflower stuff. So now you've got the beginnings of America established and the lineage, which is very proud. And it was very proud to my mother. She used to go to family picnics on the Hudson River and talk, well, this aunt was this and that aunt once that, and that was your great-grandfather Hatch, who was the president of New York Stock Exchange. I mean, these, they, it was really an establishment people. It wasn't wealth. It was, it was um, kind of like the DAR or something like that. So my mother was a third of three daughters, but my grandfather was quite progressive in the sense that he educated all th each of the three daughters. My, my aunt went to Barnard College, and both my, uh, other, my other aunt went to Wells College, and they were New York. They were women's colleges. They kept them away from the men, so they would be safe and they could study. And that that was where she met my father at a at a, at a party, um, and, and they began dating. Now, yes, the courtship was um, they they loved each other. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here, at least in this form. <laughs> uh, and they eventually did get married, and that was that was good for me and them. <laughs> and um, and, and, and my Trent too, as well. So, uh, but it is true that my father, in those days, to get your father's permission as a daughter, and uh, that you know, you would you would ask the father to take the hand of his daughter, and he was reluctant because he didn't think he had a real job. Now, my grandfather was a mechanical engineer. He too had a scholarship to Yale University from Cincinnati, where he grew up, um, from the Tafts. So he didn't mind the fact that he was a hardworking didn't have a lot of money. He just wanted to make sure he had a real job to support yeah. his wife and whatever babies might come. That was what I, I just want to underscore that this, talking about your mother is not a footnote or an aside to the story of your father's career because she ends up playing a really important role in his career. I mean, we've, we've heard from Bobby and from you about the marketing abilities of your father, but wasn't your mother in many ways a better business person than your father was? And how important was she to his business as it unfolded in the coming decades? Well, they were a team. Um, and uh, I remember growing up that after, we lived in Montclair, New Jersey, where my grandfather, her father lived, and, and had retired from New York Bell Telephone. And because the New York Bell Telephone, when he retired, they gave you a free telephone. That means you didn't have to pay the, 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 for the phone. When we wanted to make, when we wanted to make, well, not me, but when my father wanted to make long distance calls, he'd go there because it was cheap, like zero. <laughs> and so they were, they were very careful with money, um, even in my, in my memories. Uh, but I, I think that my mother was, as you say, a businesswoman, but my grandfather was a businesswoman. They, they just made the checkbooks match. And my dad was out selling. 
He was the, the greatest of salesmen, believe me. He could, sell, he could sell an ice cube to an Eskimo. He could sell almost anything. But he did it in his own warm and friendly way, but he was extremely bright, and he, had a, he could, he, he could uh, read a room, and he knew who had money and who didn't and who might actually do the job, and he'd focus on that person. My mother, on the other hand, focused on the bills. And I can still remember at Baldestroll, um, my mother would push him to make the last... Um, agreed upon um, visit uh, and other places because my dad kind of moved on when he'd done his creative thing he, he, he really didn't care about the details at the end he was already on to another project in his own mind this is late, much later than the, the early the, the days you're talking about she said, you got to go get that, you got to go see those people. Oh, I don't know, Mr. Fisher, the golf pro doesn't like, he thinks the course is too hard. you got to go, you got to go. So I remember him, her pushing him to go do that, which she agreed to so that she could get the check, Some things like that. Thompson and Jones that I mentioned earlier really starts to, uh, as your father becomes more and more successful, he really needs Thompson less and less. I and mean, he's got his own jobs. Uh, I have a listing here of the courses that, if you look at the Stanley Thompson website and the Stanley Thompson Society, you know, you'll see a lot of the same courses that the Robert Trent Jones Society lists because they, they, the contract was with Thompson and Jones. So in a sense, both of the architects get credit for the courses. Uh, there's some interesting issues about what, what, who did what where. I mean, I, I did an article some time back about your father's role in the routing at, at Capilano, and some of the Canadian historians don't want to hear anything about that. They don't believe it, but the evidence is, is there that your father did have a role in that. But in, by the by late 30s, Thompson had gone to Brazil for a few years to do work during the, during the winters. Uh, he wanted your dad to go down there with him. He never, he never did. He had, his business was, was uh, developing. So I thought we should at least put some closure to the Thompson Jones company. Uh, do you, do you, am I explaining it you know, correctly well, enough? You, you actually know a lot better than me. I wasn't born yet. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but they were friendly. Um, most golf architects are friendly. We do have a whole society where we compete like crazy for nine, eleven months, and then one month a year we get together and play golf, so uh, and talk shop. And so uh, they were friendly. Um, you, I think, elaborated that in your book quite quite well. And you're, I know that you have researched both family, both uh, histories of the, the two of them. So there, yeah, there might have been some, you know, the the, the, the whole idea of. Who gets credit? In the end of the day, uh, maybe they both deserve credit for what yeah. they did. Yeah, I agree. Oh yeah, one thing. One thing later. Uh, I mean, Trent just reminded me that that um, when I was a boy, Stanley Thompson later on, and, and this was like say 1949-50, he would come visit, and and he was very warm and also a great salesman in his own right. And he would come visit and stay in our house. But in those days, you would travel from, say, Toronto, or, and you would stay in someone's house. You didn't go to a hotel. There weren't very many good hotels in small towns, and, and they weren't even, and they were too expensive. So he would stay in our house. And as, when my mother heard that Stanley Thompson was coming, she would always go to where we, the, my father didn't drink hardly at all, but uh, he, he, my mother would put away the sherry and the silverware because every time Stanley Thompson came, both disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted your reaction to this slide. This is actually one of the courses that he that he uh, 
started to work on and then sort of got stalled and then came back to it later was the course at Cornell University where he had been a student. But my question, I mean, you can comment on his connection to Cornell that goes beyond him being a student there if you like, but I wanted you to comment on his drawings. I mean, do you, do you consider your father, look at the different positions. This is like could have been a green at, at we played today. This is a green at the top that shows the different pin positions that you could have and the tongue, that you can see the tongues and different parts of the, of the green complex. Uh, but was your father an artist, architect? How, what would you say about his drawings and how he <laughs> went about uh, depicting and coming, coming, composing, I guess. Right. The, the green complexes well, in particular. There are two, two kinds of drawings there. One is a plan view from the air, which we call a layout, um, and that shows the, his vision of the shot-making alternatives that's in the strategic school as opposed to uh, penal school. Penal school is British, and if you miss a shot, you're in a bunker you can't get out of and you have to play sideways. The strategic school is you have different options of playing around the hazards that are confronting you to get at the flag and so to get at the green and ultimately the hole. So what he's doing is he's showing different options, which was traditional at that time. A lot of the uh, architects such as Stillinghouse, Ross, and uh, Mackenzie, who were, and were well known, would do layouts with old, old multiple ways to play a single hole. But what my father just did is he, as Bobby Vaughn said earlier, he, he would teach, he taught me to sketch. He learned, he took art at Cornell. And he said that that and public speaking were probably more important than anything. Uh, agronomy was important technically, but he could hire that, so or he could collaborate with others on that. But um, he said, Bobby, and he would teach me to sketch, and then we, you know, after, you know, on trips together or whatever, we we just sketch, um, and one one per, and I have a, I'm lucky, and um, when I took my SATs, I have the gene, I got 99 percentile in spatial relations, I got maybe 89, 90 in math, and I got 78 in English, with which I thought I was that was good. My mother said, "Work on your weakest subject," and she tutored me in philosophy and English hardcore, so I could even go on. So, uh, but the spatial relations gene—you either see it or you don't. We see things in the alternative. I'm looking around this room. I'm seeing you at all tables, but actually, I'm seeing oh, that table could be over there by that exit, and maybe this person sitting in that angle could be sitting like you are. I see this as figures. I don't see you as people or straight lines or like these lines. Most people tend to see things in a lineal sense. That's why most buildings are square, a rectangle. My dad and I both and I see things as flowing, as you mentioned. And so he would say, nature abhors a straight line. Why should we build square greens? If you see some of the old greens by um, McDonald, and, um, and you know, they're square. Why were they square? Because in, when the Greensmower was finally invented in the early 20th century, uh, people would walk 30 paces by 30 paces at the end of the fairway to cut the fairway down in, in the British Isles to a s shorter height, and thus they were square. Now that's considered some sort of a great design. I think it's awful, frankly. I think it's un unimagined. I mean, it's, it's, it's a target. And it's uh, it, it, some some people. I shouldn't say it's awful. It's a, it's a it's an art form of another era. Let's put it that way. And whereas he would say, let's be much more creative. We start with a convex line. You go to a concave line. You go to a convex line. You go to a concave line. And he would talk about the silhouette. 
the, of the background of the green. Then within the green, he would use tongues and diagonals and different, different angles. In that sense, he was following more Mackenzie than anybody. Um, the, uh, Donald Ross was pretty repetitive in his designs. I grew up on a Donald Ross course. I still remember the, the, the decks within the greens at Montclair Golf Club. Um, and so on. Banks and Rayner were much more rigid. They were civil engineers. And if you look at their works as much as they're lionized today, particularly Rayner, um, they're, they're civil engineering projects as opposed to art projects. And this continues, this sort of theme continues. In 1938, uh, he published a 36-page booklet that would be a nice memorabilia piece for anybody if they could find one. Uh, which was to market his work to clients, prospective clients. And he, and he called it a modern theory of golf architecture. Um, and this booklet, I was able to, to look at it very, very carefully, again, published from 38. And I think it, it sort of encapsulates uh, all of his basic fundamental principles of design as he understood them and valued them in 1938. What was his modern theory of architecture, and in what sense was it modern? I think you've already started to answer that. Yeah, well, well that's a very, that's an essay question. <laughs> I don't, we don't have time for that. But I, I do want to say one thing. This book was a collaboration between my mother and him. My mother was an English and philosophy major. She was, uh, when we, my brother and I needed to have our papers, look, she would review all of our high school papers, and she wrote as much of this book as he did. It was his thinking, but she put it into legible, clear English. Um, he did the drawings, of course, but it was a, a real collaboration. And so they were already working together, and, when, and, and you know, as husband and wife, as business people or professionals. So anyway, the, the, his philosophy of the modern game had not really developed. It really doesn't develop until post-World War II, in my opinion. You can see inklings of it. It tends to talk about what others were doing. Um, and then it begins to become, he's more in the school of, of, as I said, strategic. But he defined in this book, as I remember, you tell me, Jim, because I haven't read it in a long time. Um, that there were three schools of architecture in, in his view. One was strategic, which he subscribed to. One was penal, which means if you made it, that's Pine Valley. You make a mistake, you hit the ball, you're going to lose a stroke. It's the same in Florida. If, you're going to, if you hit it in the water, you have lost a ball and a stroke. And so you're punished for a mistake. Strategic, you may hit it in a bunker, but if the bunker's shaped in a certain way that you have the skill and the courage to hit a long shot out of it, you can recover and maybe even get all the way to the green. That's the strategic skill. There's a school. Then there's one other school that he subscribed to called the heroic school. And an example of a heroic golf hole would be number 18 at Pebble Beach. Only golf heroes, such as Jack Nicklaus and or Tiger Woods, will attempt to go across the ocean twice to the green in two shots. You'd have to be extremely strong, extremely courageous in a tournament where money was up or, 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 or honor. So those are the three schools. Yeah, good. Um, I'll this is just some pictures of him. Uh, I guess I did want to ask this. Well, maybe I'll wait till we talk about the courses in the 50s. You were saying post-war is really when it crystallizes. Yeah, into, late 40s. Yeah, and I, so I want to make sure we leave knowing what you believe are the basic elements of his, of his design. 
Um, but before going into his post-war work, I wanted to show this slide and one other one. Um, you know, in World War II, you know, there wasn't a lot of golf work to be done in World War II either. I mean, your, your father went on to do some other things, uh, like working on airfields, uh, grass airfields. But I, I was quite taken by the fact this slide shows three pretty special projects that he did for private you know, private estates. He did for Doris Duke, Duke Farms, for Tom Watson. The IB, they did a course for IBM. Uh, and then for uh, Lowell Thomas, the course at Quaker Hill. Uh, what can you tell us about that work? I mean, that wasn't the only work he did work to work. Might have been the best thing work he did in World War II. Well, well <laughs> complicated story. First of all, he was older. He was 38 or 9 or 40, and he was not drafted. But he was given a commission, so to speak, to be attached to the Army Air Corps. And he, he was instructed to help because he was an agronomist, he could go into corn, I mean, he had agronomy um, knowledge and earth-moving knowledge by the, by the people in charge, I think it was a Colonel Blake, as I recall, uh, to build civil airfields for civil defense. Remember, in World War II, in the beginning, I remember as a boy pulling down black curtains in Montclair, New Jersey, and air raid sirens would go off almost nightly. And you know, when I was very young, I, I didn't know what it was. All I know is my mother turned off all the lights and read us my brother and me short stories as, it, as the war progressed. We were getting older, which he was my brother's a baby, but to keep us quiet. But anyway, there was um, you know a landing by a German submarine in Long Island. I mean, they actually did. The government actually did fear that we would be attacked once we declared war on on the uh, Germans, and. Um, so he was attached to build civil, civil airfields and not unlike this table, very elongated, long, um, thin f fields so that planes could land, civil planes that would maybe attack, would be used by the Americans well, who are mostly away at war to repulse any possible German invasion. Um, so that's what he did. Well, if you'll think about this fast forward in the 50s, where do you think he got the idea of the runway T? He was making runways. And why was that important? Because he saw the idea of the game getting both shorter and longer due to the equipment, but he already had the technique down how to actually make them. And he also saw the idea that they could use a gang mower, which now the equipment is getting better post-World War II. Remember, there were no caterpillar, there were no bulldozers until after World War II. They were tank tracks. They had used steam shovels and horses and other things to build golf courses pre-World War II, pre-Depression, World War II. And very few things were, were built in that long period of time, but the advance in technology for building things happened due, in part because of World War II itself. So that's where he gets the idea, and he applies this knowledge to what we call golf architecture, and it's unique. It was the first time that it had been done. Um, I've lost track of the question, but what is it? But I think his real work began after po post-World War II. On into the post-war period. Uh, oh, again, oh, this, this, these three question. courses. Yeah, he did work for Tom, Tom them on, on minor at Poughkeepsie because Mr. Tom Watson wanted his laborers to have some recreation. That theme, by the way, goes through American corporate life, uh, century world, which uh, Jay was Do you want to, also in the war context, do you want to talk about the West Point course at all? And I what do. Was, what I was do. done there? I do. That's I'm, an interesting story. Me. So after it became clear that we, the war, the 
our fortunes in war had um, changed and it was the Battle of the Bulge in 1944 and, and, and we were winning the war. We had, Nor we had attacked Normandy on June 6, 1944. And we, the war was going our way. He was called to West Point and he was uh, told they didn't need any more civil air fields, but they, he want, they wanted him, since he was attached to the Army Air Corps, there was no Air Force at that time, technical division of the government. And he said, they said, well, we've got all these German POWs here at West Point, and they're, and they're bored, and not only that, we need, need them something to do. So why don't you lay out a golf course, which he did. And then the German POWs built it until the war ended, and there were only 12 or 13 holes, and they went back to Germany, and that's the way it stayed till Congress appropriated the remainder of the money in 1958. So the German POWs built the West Point golf course. What's your reaction to this picture? <laughs> you were born in 1939, your brother in 1941, I guess. This is right. from 1946. You're with your, with your grandfather. Right. Uh, what was your childhood like in Montclair? Well, I was a lot closer to my mother's father. Um, he was also a mechanical engineer, and so he was pretty um, strict. He was, an, he was a great athlete. Uh, he'd run in the first Olympics in, in Greece. Um, uh, uh, but he didn't have any money either, so he had to shovel coal on a steamship for Mr. Grace's uh, steamship to, to get himself to Greece and ride his bicycle up and sign up for the event, which was a 220 and 440, as we would call it, 200 meter and 400 dash. In 2004, in his honor, uh, I went to the Olympics in, in Athens and went to those two events alone, and I, I'm proud to say that on the podium, first, second, and third, there was an American flag. Yep. Now, here we go into the important uh, post-war period. Uh, in the years after World War II, your father's business and reputation really began to soar in relation, I think, to three projects in particular. In, in 1948, the design of Peachtree Golf Club in Atlanta in collaboration with Robert Tyre, Bobby, Bobby Jones. In 1949, with the building of the Dunes Club in Myrtle Beach, back when Myrtle Beach had hardly any golf courses. Uh, and then also in 1945, 40, excuse me, 49, when the USGA, uh, under the leadership of, of uh, Joe Dye and the, and the leadership of Oakland Hills Country Club, their, their secretary, a uh, man named John, Big John Oswalt, uh, that club near Detroit hired your dad to do a redesign of the Donald Ross original South Course. Ross had just died in 1948. All three of these projects were huge for your father. Um, so um, how did these three courses, what did they tell us about his career and how his design principles and approach has now changed in some respects? Is that fair to say? Well, as I, as, I would, yes. We, every artist worth his salt grows and changes over a long period of time. Um, and I would say that true golf architects are artists as well as sports people and, and um, sportsmen and women. And uh, yeah, post-World War II, there had been very little golf building of any kind. There was an enormous opportunity. The American, we were absolutely dominant in the world. We had won, the Americans had won World War II. And we were a big and vast country, and there was a sudden uh, sigh of relief. And people went out and enjoyed themselves, as they should. If you're a boating person, you went on, got a boat, and went sailing or in a little boat or motorboat. If you're a 
something, this new sport of skiing, that was suddenly a bit more popular in Basques and Western Massachusetts. Yeah, and Colorado was still not up to speed yet, but it was getting there. And if you were a golfer, the very elite game of the 20s now gave way to a democratic game where more people wanted to try it and so on. But still, the people who built golf courses um, built them for their fellow businessmen. In the case of Peachtree, it was a group of people led by John O'Childs and Bobby Jones, of course, was the main man of Atlanta, always, and one of America's great heroes. And he'd done a gust of it, which almost almost went out of business in the Depression. And so he uh, asked around, where are all the golf workers? Well, by that time, Tillinghast had died, Mackenzie had died, Donald Ross was in retirement, the great architects were not active. And they asked, well, where's, where's the new, where are the new ones? And everybody said, there's this young man named Bob Jones up in New Jersey, New York, and we wanted to try him. And that's how he got the actual uh, introductions. Now, at Myrtle Beach, that was intention, not intended to attract necessarily private clubs. It was a, really a resort course. And so that's a change in, in thinking about what a golf course could be. It's a destination resort to have people go to the beach and play golf. So he did these new courses, and they were very popular, and they were very big and strong, and they were not weak golf courses. I want to I want to save the, the discussion of Oakland Hills to a, a, a next question. I wanted to show you this slide. This is a pretty famous slide. Uh, shows Bobby Jones on one and Robert Trent Jones on the other, and some of these other Alabama or uh, Alabama Atlanta, Atlanta uh, business types. This is them walking Peachtree. Uh, what was the relationship between? your father and Bobby Jones. It, it, it really kind of started here at that particular time, right, with Peachtree? It did. It's a, it's what, did it, what did it develop into? And hadn't Bobby actually brought, even before Peachtree, slightly before? I'm sorry? Hadn't he brought him into Augusta? Hadn't Bobby, no, Robert Tyre Jones? No, 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 no. no. Well, no, there's, no. there's wait, evidence wait. that I've seen that suggests that your father was brought in and did some work like on the 16th hole at Augusta? Yes, he did, but not, but not preceding Peachtree. It didn't precede uh, no, uh, did Peachtree? No, it did not precede, no. Okay, but it, it it then it came shortly thereafter. No, it was simultaneous, in my opinion. But you're the what, what years, you, what you years would me. it have been? <laughs> what years do you think it would have been that your father was at Augusta? I, I, you're, you're, asking, you're testing my memory at okay. my age. Well, a couple of I would refer you to my book. That's my best evidence, whatever it read, says. Read, I need to reread read my the, book. Read the historian's yeah, book. I need in, to, in any event... Um, so the question still stands, uh, the relationship between yeah, your father and, and, and yeah, Bobby Jones. In, in any event, uh, what happened is that Bobby Jones and Clifford Roberts, who was the businessman, somehow got Augusta National through the Depression and World War II. They did not pay McKenzie's fees. McKenzie was always complaining about that, lose letters and so on in the 30s. It's because they couldn't, all right? Um, and it almost went bankrupt. But now Bobby Jones, being the hero of American sports, I mean, by the way, I'm going to just digress for a second. It's my personal opinion that there was, there is no golden age of golf architecture. There was a golden age of sport. That's what Grantland Rice called the 1920s. That included the Four Horsemen from Notre Dame. That included um, Bobby Jones's uh, Grand Slam. That included, uh, I think it included Tilden and tennis, and and so on. And, and it's a retrospective where someone has applied that to our golf architecture. And that person's Tom Doak, and it's not, it's not, I'm an American studies major, I actually read the documents, and you know that. And it's not, it, there was no golden age of golf horse architecture. It was a golden age of sport of which architects participated. Uh, so getting to the point, 
the the feeling is that um, that these people had uh, passed away, and Bobby Jones was looking for someone to work with them. And you're right; they wanted to update Augusta National. And but what had happened is the wooden shafts had given way to steel shafts. The gutter percha ball, which had long been gone, uh, had got, become much more lively with spalding, and the dimple patterns were very aerodynamic. And so when Jones and his friends, like Tommy Armour and other, played in the Masters in the 30s, it was one. The bunkers were in one place, and the tee, and they were in play off the in, in this beautiful thing called Augusta National. But now when they played post-war war, they were not. And he wanted to update the course. So. That starts the whole remodeling, and there's a big difference between renovation and remodeling. Many courses need renovating because they were let go, uh, or parts of them were let go during the Depression and the war. For example, at San Francisco Golf Club, where I'm a member, half the bunkers were just turned into grass during that time because of costs, and then they were, have been now since restored. But the point I'm making is that Bobby Jones wanted to, if he, all games have an attack and a defense element, they, were, they played a lot of golf together, my father and Bobby Jones and these people. John O'Childs was the main man that kind of pulled the money together. And my own wife's father was a member of Peachtree, uh, John uh, Hal Smith, who, who uh, had a business there. And Peachtree became the kind of inland Augusta, and it's big and strong and bold and uses water holes. But I personally think they were going on simultaneously. It may have been discussed simultaneously, but they're built it's slightly different years. That may be true, Jim. I, you're the historian, so you'll, you'll tell me. But what he did is change number 16, and that's a key thing. Yeah. Well, I, in, maybe I'm pushing this argument too hard, but uh, I think it's worth making. Augusta, over the years, since the 19, late 1940s, when that redesign re was done, certainly of 16, it's like Augusta doesn't want to credit your father for even being on the course. I mean, well, I don't I, 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 there's nothing in any of the literature related to Augusta that I've ever seen that suggested your father had any work to do at all at Augusta National. Uh, the golf, there are a lot of golf writers that know that it's that it happened, but Augusta doesn't credit your father well, for any I, kind of work at Augusta. Well, at all. I don't. They're an institution; they can do what they want. Otherwise, I won't get my master's tickets, and I'm not going <laughs> okay. there. Okay, I'm not. I'm not concerned. I don't think I'm ever going to get get that invite. So. Yeah, I think it's worth looking into myself. But uh, okay, uh, let me go back to this slide. This shows Oakland Hills. Uh, what a story the re the reworking of Oakland Hills is, uh, which started in 1949 with your dad uh, Ross uh, Ross Gorse, that that he had died in '48. Your father comes in does a major redesign of Oakland Hills for the 51 Open. It becomes one of the most memorable championships in the history of American golf uh, that Ben Hogan wins uh, at, I think, seven over par. Uh, he shoots 67 the last day. There had only been one other sub-70, which was the par. Your dad changed the cut two par fives to par four, so it was playing 69, about 6,900 par 70. It was a monster. This is the, where the source of the quote from Hogan, I brought the monster to its knees. And supposedly when he left, he left the 18th green one day and saw your mother, you know, you can confirm whether I'm telling the story right, said to your mother on the way back, if your father had to play the, if your husband had to play the golf course as he designs, you'd be, you'd be in the soup line or the, you know, the bread line or, or whatever. That's uh, all true. My mother yeah. told that story many times. Yeah. So 
why is it so important to focus on what your father did at Oakland Hills? Does it become a paradigm or the paradigm of modern championship right. golf in the 50s, starting in the 50s? So I wore this tie as an honor to Joe Dye. This is a, the official USJ tie. Without the United States Golf Association, <clears throat> Joe Dye, my father's career would have been completely different if even, if even successful. So simultaneously, while Bobby Jones was trying to upgrade Augusta, the United States Golf Association uh, was choosing open sites, but they were uh, outmoded from the, their point of view to test the greatest players of you know, mostly the United States, but beyond that, uh, foreign uh, people, from, particularly from the UK or South Africa or the, the English-speaking countries, um, who, would, who would, if they could, would travel to play it in an open. The purse wasn't that big, but they wanted to, the open championship was the championship. Remember now. England was destitute. Even their great open, as they now call it, the open, was, it was a pretty minor tournament in terms of the participants, and there was no prize money. So the United States Open was the tournament. So he was chosen by not the USGA, but Joe Dye would whisper in the ears of the potential um, venues that if you really would like to host an open championship, you might want to get Trent Jones to help you. And then together, Joe Dye and he would talk about Certain very technical. It'd be like the first violinist talking to the second violinist. It was very technical, you know. And um, and so he did change radically the, an update uh, 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 Oakland Hills and other courses for U.S. Open Championship. And it's true that the pro, 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 uh, professionals who had played much different courses were not happy. What what didn't the pros in particular like about what he had done? Uh, did they? I mean. Describe briefly what he did do in terms of bunker play, getting rid of Ross's bunkers because they were too. He bracketed the bunkers on either side. My brother and I, Reese, would go to tournaments and uh, at Baldestroll on the 17th. We lived in New Jersey, and we were given the job to mark with lines in the rough where a, a professional's ball would land and how far it rolled, and. And one of his key people, a man named John Smyser, would, or Bill Baldwin, would mark it on a sheet. And he was measuring the actual distances under in championship conditions. And then he would bracket the bunkering uh, around those conditions on a still day on a flat site, not factoring in the weather or the setup of the day. So for the by the USA and then the Joe but, Dye. But the bracketing just didn't stop. Sorry for interrupting, but the bracketing wasn't. I just want to make sure everybody gets the right impression. It isn't necessarily that the bunkers were. Side by side at the same, at exactly the they same. They often were, but they, they were. often were, but they often weren't. I mean, yeah, sometimes the bracketing went like that, right? And and, and well, the, 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 the best terrain. line was to try to skirt one of the bunkers. It, it, you're you're correct, but think of other courses you would know, such as Marion, and the white faces of Marion. There are lots of bunkers of Marion, but it's a, it's the slope of the land. If you ha if you want to not go in the left rough, you had to hit it almost in the right rough on some holes at Marion because the slope would go that. We're talking about Oakland Hills, and there the terrain was more flat um, than, say, a, a lot of terrain change. There was some change in elevation, but it could be the bracketing could be offset. But it was basically to catch an errant shot. And then the second thing he did is he elevated the greens, or what he would call framed them in bunkers. So you now had to carry the shot all the way. There was no open entrance. There was no links way to play the hole. You had to, it was too, it was like the difference between World War I on the ground game with tank traffic and World War II aerial, aerial bombardment. You had to play in the air to, to, to attack this course. And that was different. And that was new. 
This slide shows a portrait of Herbert Warren Wynn and a portrait of your father and a cover of the New Yorker magazine, uh, an issue where Wynn wrote a very now famous story about your father and what he did at, uh, at Oakland Hills. Uh, and talk about the importance of that article for your father's career and his reputation and his legacy. Uh, and... Um, and what did he think about that story? Well, was he, was he, was he me, fond of the story? Yeah, oh, yes, he was. But let me go back for a second. Um, yeah, he was, he was ecstatic to be in the New Yorker magazine and have a profile done. You made your career, whether it was in the arts or Broadway or whatever. So, no, he, he, and my mother was even more ecstatic, but that's another story. Um, she just she didn't knew the bills were going to get paid. <laughs> um, but to get the, going back a step, I want to go back to two things before we get into the early 50s. One, how my father's name became Robert Trent Jones, which I kind of glossed over. At Peachtree, my father's actual born name in the, in the and you've looked at this, in the, I think in the, in the baptism in, in England, was Robert Jones. So he, he, he did not have a name Trent. That's, that comes later. His school kids, when he was becoming a good player, a golfer, said, oh, you're Rochester's Bobby Jones, but you need a middle name. That Bobby Jones has a middle name. He is Robert Tyre Jones. We're going to give you a middle name. And they said, well, where are you from? He said, well, near the River Trent, Stoke-on-Trent. He said, okay, that's your middle name. So the school kids in high school or junior high school, or whatever time it was, and Rochester kind of suggests that. So he never actually had that name given in an official sense until the late middle 40s. So, so when Bobby Jones was in Peachtree, they would say, hey, Bob, and both people would look at say, the man calling over, would you like to have a bourbon and branch water or whatever they were drinking? Um, and they both look at him and say, no, I mean Bob Jones. And both of them look at it. And my dad realized instinctively that this was, um, he had to pay homage immediately to Bob Jones. He said, Bob Jones, there can only be one Bob Jones. I'll be Trent from now on. So my mother, until her death, called him Bob. But other people began calling him Trent. And that's where the middle name became significant. So that's why we use three names, or he did. And that's why, to distinguish from Bobby Jones. All right, second thing, um, in 1948, they founded the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And that's at, Peach, at Pinehurst. And you all have been to Pinehurst, I gather, from what Jay said. And you know that story, so I'm not going to belabor that. But uh, there were, he had competitors, and they were all there in that picture. He wasn't alone, okay? So I just, I just want to point out that Oakland Hills kind of distinguished him from the other people that might do modern work. And then this article by Herbert Warren yeah, Wynn the, the really by, was the, the... The article by Herbert Warren Wynn was because he was a great writer. He also was a Yale graduate, and, um, and my mother liked that. So it was good. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's a slide that shows uh, five courses that your father did work on for the U.S. Opens in 54, 55, 56, 58, and 62. Baldus for all the way you just told us about measuring the, the distances, which apparently your father had been doing back even into the 30s at some tournaments. But he becomes the Open Doctor. Uh, was that a mixed blessing to be called the Open Doctor, or was it an altogether good thing from his point Great of view? Thing. Um, it, it was, um, I think it was Will Grimsley of the Associated Press who gave him that name. Um, I mean, it's a press point of view. And, and as Bobby said, my father was a salesman. And if he could be the open doctor, man, he, your course 
if you wanted an open championship, you might not get the nod, but a lot of people got a lot of remodeling work on courses that never got an open. (laughs) So he was selling. This caption is a little bit wrong, but I wanted that putting the three slides together isn't wrong. I wanted to feature Firestone, Spyglass, and Hazeltine. Hazeltine, of course, does does have an open. Um, your father does have to experience and and respond in some respect to some to a lot of criticism that develops. Uh, I remember looking at how some of the comments from Nicholas about Spyglass, for example. Uh, and of course, the infamous uh, comments by um, uh, Dave, uh, Dave, Dave Hill. Yeah, Dave, Dave, uh, Dave is, it, is it Dave Hill? Hill. Yeah, Hill at, at Hazeltine. I was uh, there when it happened. What, what are they criticizing at this point in time about his architecture? And do you feel like, do you feel like it's just that any of the compl- com- complaining is justified, was justified at the time? Uh, and how did he how did he react? I mean, they called him in the pros. The architect, the pros, loved to hate. Did, did he think that was good for business? Yes, he did. It, it distinguished him from others. And all sport is tension. That's why we watch it on television. We want to see a World Series where the Atlanta Braves are, you know, beating up on the Texans, especially since the Dodgers beat the Giants, and the, you know, on and on it goes. It's, it's all about tension, and now it's entertainment on television, but in those days, television was black and white. It wasn't that big a deal, but the newspaper business uh, would, would make one a protagonist against the other, and they would go into the locker room and get quotes, and that's what happened. Here's a picture of you and your brother and your dad at... Um, yeah, well, before you go there. Sure, sure. You're, since you're on Hazeltine. Yeah, Hazeltine. You're um, back. I was, had now kind of segued from my father's work. In fact, I had an, my own company in the early 70s you know, doing the work in Asia Pacific where I was more interested. Um, and he was more interested in Europe at the time. And we had a good relationship and we uh, professionally and remained personally good throughout uh, his life. Um, and as you know, we spent time together in his old age and, and, and he, he was uh, complex but very good. Uh, and particularly here on the trail uh, where I had no participation design-wise, but we helped him with financial issues and other things. And, found Alan Davis, who was then working at Mackay. Now, why is Mackay? Mackay is the golf course in Princeville that actually made my reputation independent of him, although I had done other work under his banner, as Roger did all his life. I'm not quite as uh, humble as Roger, so, you know. <laughs> uh, I like to have my fly my own flag. So, anyway, getting to the point, I, I want him to see this work. He had and he came to look at it, and we went out and saw nine holes. It's a 27-hole golf course. And he suddenly got a telephone call, old-fashioned telephone call, from a reporter saying, Jack Nicholas has said your course at, at Hazeltine is unplayable and it's blind. And we were having lunch, and I wanted to show him the other 18 holes. Bobby, get your bag. We're leaving. We left. We went to, Kaua- to Lahui Airport, went to Honolulu, flew all night to... Hazel to Minneapolis and came out on the golf course and we walked all 18 holes before the champion's dinner. And he said, Bobby, can you see the target area? And I remember I'm playing at that time to about a three or four. And and I know Nicholas very well. I competed, uh, he always won, but I competed against him 
in the, in the, in the JC Juniors at Columbus, Georgia when we were both 15. And so we were friendly, um, competitive, but friendly. And, um, and so we went around and I could see every shot. What, what Nicholas meant was that there were sharp dog legs and he couldn't see the whole hole. He could see the targets, but not the hole. This is target golf before Pete Dye invented target golf at Hazelwood because there were sharp, there were sharp dog legs. So you played with one target and then turned and so on. That's what Hazleton was. It was later remodeled by him and my brother. But getting to the point, we, we, the, we then went to uh, the next day, and this is what the, where the press, especially the written press, in those days had nothing to write about until the tournament started on Thursday. So they, he came in to defend himself, and of course, and, and he said, um, a gentleman, can you see the first landing area on the first hole? It was, a, it was a dog leg left, as I recall. And they said, yes. When you get to that shot, can you see the green? Yes. Can you see the next hole, which I think was a par five going toward the woods? Yes. Can you see the second shot landing area? Can you see the green? Yes. Then we're in the woods. Can you see the par three? Yes. Can you see the, uh, and there was like a, all of a sudden a chorus, like a call and response in a Baptist church or something going on. Yes, no. And so can you see the next shot? Is that, is that, is that, is the fourth hole blind? Is the fifth hole blind? No, no. Then maybe Jack Nicholas is blind. <laughs> and that made national news and didn't make Jack happy and he told me so. <laughs> so. That's, uh, that's, that's the way, that, that's locker room talk. <laughs> in, in the 1960s, your dad started to get more and more involved in international work. Well, um, you were show, back at the picture at Spyglass. I sure can. Yeah. So that picture was taken um, to celebrate Spyglass Hill, which I think, and, and Jay would, I hope, concur. I lived there, and I had the privilege of working on two courses, Poppy Hills and Spanish Bay with Tom Watson and Sandy Tatum. Um, to be to do your to do work at Pebble Beach is like an artist being asked by the Pope to work in the Vatican. It's that serious and important. I mean, this is extraordinarily glorious work. But in the way in which people talk, I played in the AT&T tournament several times, and the way in which the pros talk, and I listen carefully to them, they respected Spyglass Hill more than Pebble Beach, shot value wise. Pebble Beach is glorious and it's held open and it's got great drama. But the, but the Spyglass Hill, among true players, is considered one or two shots harder, and, 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 but, but also fair. So I think that's one of his great works. Uh, as I said, he started to do a lot more work internationally starting in the 1960s, and I know his, he, he must have flown, he have been in the Million Mile Club. Here are the, some pictures from Dorado Beach, and uh, this is Dominican Republic, I believe. Um, and then this next slide shows his work in some of his work in Spain, Soto Grande and Valderrama, which became a host of the Ryder Cup. Um, did I think you told me that your dad was traveling so much that oftentimes you're, I own your, you know, his wife and you guys. You didn't even know where he was at. I mean, he would no, I don't take off. I, I, that wasn't me at all. You, you didn't he, tell me that because I would go with him. Of course, he knew where he was. Would, so you went all the you went on all the international. You went on the international trips. Oh, with him. oh, well, yeah. no, no, no. What he, what I said was, if I maybe, maybe I was, I'm just, I don't know what I said, but I, what I thought was sometimes he had jobs in different locations, and he, we would come up to the airport and said, say, I remember distinctly this happened once, 
and it said uh, flight to St. Louis on uh, in Amer uh, TWA leaving in half an hour. And we'd rush up and we we're too late to get the flight. And he'd say, well, when's the next flight? Oh, that won't be for five hours, sir. He said, no, he said, ne the next flight anywhere, I have a job there. And we would take it, really. But it didn't maybe have a job there, but when we got there, it was gonna go hustle one. <laughs> the, the, work, the work that he did abroad, and most, I mean, he, he did some work in the Pacific Basin as well, but he did not probably, much, we'll, not much, we'll but some, but he did more. Let's go, let's go back to what your question was. First, yeah. his work, He's European, yeah. and he likes to be in Europe. And, and what basically changed that whole era was the jet plane. All right. Before it was prop planes and very long and tedious and somewhat dangerous sometimes. And of course, wars was and the devastation of the war and the rest of the world was still apparent. America was thriving, but it took a while for particularly Great Britain and France and, and Spain to come back. They were poor countries. So a man named Joe McMicking, who was MacArthur's aide-de-camp, invited him to do the Soto Grande project. Now I speak some Spanish, so he brought me along. He never went alone. He, he would always take Roger Rulowicz or Cavill Robinson or myself or my brother with him. All right, good. Um, we didn't want him to get lost. <laughs> this is a question I wanted to ask. I'm not sure if it's a fair criticism. I think it's something that some people have said to me, not you. But by the 70s and 80s, your dad was, if you look at the number of courses and the number of projects he's involved in, he's doing a lot of work and he's got more resources assisting him, I guess. But do you think he got too busy at one point? Could he, did, he, could he, did he always pay enough attention to every one of his courses or did he sort of, again, show up and do the important things and sort of leave, leave a lot of the work for others to do? Or how would you describe that? Well, I wouldn't describe it quite that way. All golf I didn't think so. <laughs> all, all golf architecture is collaborative. And we depend upon our aides, such as Jay. We depend upon uh, bulldozer operators we're called shapers. We depend upon the client who has the money and the land. We, we, and usually it's quite a, a dialogue, would you agree, between all of those people. So yes, he had a lot of work, but uh, yours truly and others were, were uh, you know, we're filling in where we needed to and taking the lead where we had to. Okay. And then he would, you know, he, he might be very focused on a project he really liked, such as the Aga Khan's project at Costa Smeralda in Italy. And it would be, you know, and I was with him one time in Japan. He did two, two courses in Japan, Karazawa 72, and, and one very good course in the Philippines. And he said, Bobby, you take care of Asia because I don't like the food here. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way it worked. Yeah. <laughs> what brought the family together for this particular event at Cornell? Oh, that was a, that was a very big deal. Um, here's, the, here's the immigrant, as you said earlier, who has made good for Cornell, and made good and uh, was educated in part at Cornell. And uh, Doc, uh, I'm trying to remember the president of Cornell's name. Um, I don't know, you, you, yeah, he, I, I, he was a it's great- in the book. Yeah, it's in the, <laughs> it's book. in the book. Anyway, he was, he's an, he was English, and he understood my father's um, immigration mm -hmm. as a child and my grandfather. So they named the course that he designed at Cornell in two stages. Uh, for him, which was a huge deal, and that's the time that that was happening. Okay, almost almost finished here. Here's a picture of your dad on the course that we'll be playing on Wednesday. This is the first tee at the Ridge Course at Oxmoor Valley. Uh, Bobby could probably actually 
tell some of those stories in terms of he would come to, to many of the uh, oh, grand openings, I guess, and, and uh, talk to the press and talk to the crowd that was there gathered. Um, Bob, if, if I asked you, Bob, Bob Jones, did your father have, I mean, if, if he was asked directly by someone like myself, what are your favorite courses that you built? What are, or what are the best courses you ever built? Well, he had a political answer. Is it the one he's working on now or the next one he's going to no, do? Is he, that his answer? No, or? no, he just said, I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to tell you who my favorite child was. But of course I know it was me. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. Anyway, anyway uh, he, 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 that's his political answer. Basically, he was into what he was doing at the time. Right, right, right. Yeah. But do you have an, a feeling yourself, if you of look what, back what, at his What old, his favorite courses were? Uh, what do you think were his best courses? What I think is his best work? Yeah. Whew, that's a big, that's, that, that could take an hour. But um, he was you know, absolutely, totally focused on what he did. He was a golf course architect, first, last, and always. He loved the sport, and he didn't do other things. We did own a golf course, which he helped found called Coral Ridge Country Club. So he was caddy. A scholarship student, golf pro, golf architect, and eventually an owner of a golf course. And he achieved his social goals to coming to America. He was a real, a real American. Jim. Yeah, Bobby, please. Please. I'll go back. You know, late, you're going to tell the story about uh, Hampton Cove? I can tell many stories, but uh, <laughs> I, heard, I heard Mr. Jones get asked this question, which was his favorite course? Um, many, many times in, in, in the late years. And he always gave the same great answer. You and I would have probably, you know, would have said, which one of your children is your favorite? And we would say, well, you know, depending upon the day or something like that. But his, his answer, you know, I think was very revealing. He would always say, my next one. His favorite course was his next one. The marketing genius. Do, do you, do, can you tell the Hampton Cove story? I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Were you there for the day that, that you know, Hampton Cove opened and, they, and he took the putter out? There's a picture of him with the putter on one of these huge greens and he put, somebody puts a ball down for him and what, he's got a 120-foot putt, something like that? He got that? a 120-foot putt. He was probably, he was well into his 80s. He was probably 85. And uh, they put it down for about 100 feet and he knocked it in the hole. And he, you know, he had his walker like that, whatever, but he gave him that putter. And, and Bob, you need to tell the Baldestraw story for those that don't know it. And that's, uh, that's, the, that's the par three the par that was three. too hard. Yeah. This yeah. is probably his favorite story. Yeah, well, he had many favorite stories. <laughs> but, and he was, as you said, a great storyteller. And people were entertained by him. And as I hope you all have been by this, uh, long history, family history from literally his historian, his friend, and, co and collaborator, and his son. So we're just trying to help you understand that at the moment we have a lot of fashion going on in, in, as all art uh, happen. Uh, we were talking earlier to one of the people out in the course about uh, clear-cutting trees versus keeping trees. We're talking about restoration versus renovation. We're talking about all these things that are, you guys think about a lot. But, and I say this in honor of my father, but I also believe it to be true. If there hadn't been Robert Trent Jones, the modern age of golf arts architecture would not have happened. He was big, bold, strong, responding, and, the, and his peers, including Bobby Jones and Joe Dye, recognized his talent. And for, uh, for everybody to say that, oh, that was the dark ages, to me is, is an insult. And I think it should be corrected uh, because you're playing these big, strong golf courses today that he, today you played one. 
You look at the, the strength of that golf course. I mean, there were no ponds. That was made by a huge dam. That was earthwork. You know. So we all talk about minimalism, and I, I'm just going to throw this out there. Everybody thinks that's something really fashionable, and it was and is. And some wonderful courses like in Nebraska were done with very little earth moving. But let me put it this way. My dad took advantage of the equipment he had, and you might call it maximalism. But, it's, but if you enjoyed the shot-making qualities and the strength and the boldness, everything here is big. It's, it's elegant at the, at, on this course you played today. And so that was his th theme. Tell, tell him the story about your dad, though, at Baltimore. Oh, Baltimore. Excuse me. I think yeah. that's probably one of the classics. Um, as I mentioned earlier, my mother wanted him to go to Baltimore to get the last bill. I think it was $10,000 or something, which was significant in those days. And in the mid early 50s. And he didn't want to go because he knew that there had been some criticism of the fourth hole, which he put a pond in front of um, and made it much more difficult for the average member. It was about a 200-yard shot, as I recall at the time. And, um, and so he, he didn't like personal criticism, particularly from the president of the club or anybody like that. He, he was very un, uneasy with that. And so um, he would go out, and they played together the first three holes, and they came to the hole, and the president hit his shot in the water, Johnny Farrell hit his shot in the back bunker, and somebody, the Greens chairman, hit his shot to the right, and they were complaining, you see this hole is too hard. And he said, well, I haven't hit yet. So to which he holed it, made a hole in one, and, and, said, and said these famous words, I think this hole is eminently fair, pay me. Eminently fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can, can I and, and, and by the way, my mother... That was such an amazing story. I, I had to do everything I could to confirm that it was true. And everything I found said it was, in fact, a, a true story. So, I mean, incredible. Uh, do you think... I have this slide. I've used it for other purposes when people ask me, well, what are the basic elements of, of uh, Jones's architecture? And, but, but my question is not that. My question is, do you think that when people are looking now at his courses... And that includes Raiders. I'm putting us right in, right square in the middle of this discussion. Do you think that we somehow, and we've stereotyped his courses, you know, into the, the, his courses are this, you know, his courses are runway tees, his courses are, are the kinds of things, I mean, not that these are not true pretty much of his courses, but do you think and when people are looking at his, at his, at some of the, the greatest courses, I mean, when you look at courses like Peachtree or Spyglass, you know, and, 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 uh, Point of Woods up in Michigan. Uh, do you think that, that the courses are really kind of being misunderstood by today's Raiders? No, I don't I don't know what, I mean, part of this whole program, and I think Jay said, you're, we're, our, we're try, what we're trying to do is, we're, this is like going into the Louvre. We're trying to explain to you a whole wing of the Louvre, which is a certain kind of era, another era. In the Louvre, you might say Monet, and you see basically all of those beautiful works of, of uh, you know, um, light, very light colors and water holes, basically. And then you might go to another part and see Leonardo da Vinci, which started Mona Lisa. And then you go to another part. It, they're all great. They're just great in different ways. Great artists make great, great works, and great architects do too. I don't, I don't think uh, we're in a fashion right now. Um, of th knocking down trees. Well, you know, that seems to be a fashion that started, and who knows how long that idea, maybe it's somewhat valid and programmatic, but these are, these are you know, uh, a new way of looking at an old, an old sport, 500-year-old sport. 
I made a similar point from uh, with some of my friends because it's kind of like you know Gothic architecture. The word Gothic was invented in the Renaissance to degrade the cathedrals like Notre Dame or Chartres uh, because the Renaissance architects were trying to make their own reputation and they believed they were returning to the classical models of Greece and Rome. So they denigrated the, the cathedrals of the Middle Ages and they called them Gothic. They're dark. It's a dark ages. Well, nobody looks at those cathedrals of the Middle Ages and thinks they're, you know, they don't understand them in the same demeaning way that the Renaissance people put it. I sometimes think that when we're looking at our architecture, and you use the word fashion, that the current day architects, and I'm not looking at Jay Blasi here necessarily, but younger architects have to make their reputation. And to some extent, they do it by eradicating or diminishing what had come before them because they have to sort of show why their fashion is new and better and, and so forth. Am I pushing this too far? Yeah, yeah my, my son Trent. Yeah, let, let young Trent get on this one. Young Trent, I haven't introduced him, but this is the grandson of Robert Trent Jones if Sr. A if I'm a grandfather, <laughs> I'm in trouble. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Trent. that you have the <laughs> microphone to talk to uh, I, I'm Trent Jones. I'm, I'm Robert Trent Jones III, for those of you I haven't met. Um, and I, I run the business operations of my father's company. Uh, one thing that I think is really notable about this is and, I, and I'm bringing you all into this conversation. I think this is something for you all to think about, uh, you know, as, as Jim was expressing earlier, is, is Raiders, I would ask you, when you play a Robert Trent Jones golf course, to ask yourself, is it a Robert Trent Jones golf course today? And what I mean by that is, with so many golf course architects of earlier eras, there is always, because of the pushes in technology, the development of golf the golf club technology, of ball technology, there is always a push to adapt to the, the current level of golfer or the current technology. And oftentimes, people come in and they start making modifications to golf courses. And they make modifications to Robert Trent Jones golf courses. And sometimes those modifications are not in the style of Robert Trent Jones. Now, they may be made with great intentions, but I've been to golf courses where you have double hazards, where somebody's decided to put a tree in front of a bunker because they thought that was smart. I think we could all agree that that's not very smart to do. But the, but the key here is that if you play a Robert Trent Jones golf course and it's been properly adapted to modern play, you're going to experience something that's very classic. But he did hundreds of golf courses around the world, and many people have come in and said, hey, I can fix this for you, and I can fix that for you. And over the decades, it changes the character of the golf course. So I would ask, yourself, ask you to ask, when you play at one of his golf courses, is it really authentic? Because I think if you find that authentic experience, you're going to find something very special. In the same way of playing an early Ross golf course or a Tilling House is very special. And I think that's something really to keep in mind. Um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I welcome your thoughts or comments on that, but I think that that's, that's one of the things we run into, and I think, that, I think that's something that Bobby's done a great job, Bobby Vaughn has done a great job of, is that, that he brought in Roger Rulowich with my grandfather, who spent decades working with my grandfather and knew how to read his plans. And, and this, back to this question of authenticity, some of you may know, and Jay, Jay certainly knows this, um, when we design a golf course today, we, we do all of our finish work in AutoCAD or in some kind of computer-aided design program. If we wish to, 
we can get down to an, a square inch level of detail. We don't usually go that far, but we can get that detailed on greens and we can hand those plans to somebody and forever they can be replicated because we have that level of detail. But if you look at the plans that, that Jim had up on the screen earlier, they're just outlines and they show little hash marks for where slopes are. If you haven't worked with the man who developed that, the, those drawings, who didn't have that vision, if you weren't a part of that team, like Reese or Roger or my father or Cabell Robinson or some of the other people, you may not have the context in which to make those judgments about whether or not this is an authentic Robert Trent Jones experience. And that's why when you judge them, I ask you to ask that question. Is it authentic? Because I think if you find, of course, like Turtle, Turtle Bay or that has some of that authenticity, you'll find something really special and enjoyable. And I hope that's helpful, and I hope I'm not yeah. sounding like a preacher here at the moment, but I, well, but I think well, that Before you move the microphone down, which you might want to do, I want to, this is uh -oh. my closing slide. This is Bob unveiling his first course in Vietnam, uh, starting design that started in 2018. It looks like a spectacular site. So my question that goes with this picture to close uh, this out before we maybe get a question or two from the audience is, is what will the Robert Trent Jones brand be 10 years from now and 25 years from now and 50 years from now? Based on what you just said, Trent, well, it mean, sounds like there's a very good chance it'll become more, less and less authentic over time. Um, I, well, but I hope, I hope are there plans in the way to try to reverse that? Yeah, well, actually, we spend a lot of time. We're, uh, if we talk about Robert Trent Jones Sr. versus Robert Trent Jones Jr., they are two different styles, and we do think about them that way. And I'll let Dad comment on that because I've taken the poor guys let me take the mic away from him. But but the, the <laughs> but the, the the key. Let me talk a little bit about what what frames what we do at Robert Trent Jones too, and and it speaks to something Bobby said. Bobby Vaughn said earlier that I think is really important is we are a team of golf course architects. And my father and maybe different than my grandfather in this way in a little bit in that he has set up a company where everybody gets to have a say that's an architect, gets to have a say in the design aspects of a golf course. He is the leader of the team, he is the final voice, he has the final vote, but it's a, it's a little bit of a Socratic method in that if you, want to, if you want to voice a change and you think that there's a mistake made in the design, you absolutely can and should say something, but you better be ready to defend it. But if you can defend it, my dad's gonna accept it. And so we have this very teamwork method of, uh, towards design in our company. And I think that that teamwork approach will affect our company into the future. Into the future. But yeah, and I think what you can see right up here on the, on the, on the screen is this is Hoiana Shores. This is during the, during the time in which it was being built and I'd be happy to show you uh, pictures of it. But Hoiana Shores is, the, is one of the first. It's in Vietnam in near the historic town of Hoi An. It's built on the ocean next to an estuary. It is a true length, in my opinion, a true Lynx golf course, except that it's in the tropics and it can get to 100 degrees on any given day. But it is a sand-based course. It's 100% built on sand. And speaking to the point of teamwork over there, you can see this is after Jay left our company, but you can see Mike Gorman, myself, and my dad standing out on the golf course looking at the shaping of the course as it's being constructed. And, and I think that that doing really exciting new design work and, and going to new places is just like you're seeing Doak or any of our competitors doing, that we're doing the same thing. Unfortunately, these days, most of the sites that really are appropriate for the really exciting work, the new work is being generated outside the United States. 
It's happening in Vietnam. It's happening in the Middle East. It's happening in parts of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, so, and also in South America. So I think we will continue on, but I think it starts with the Robert Trent Jones Senior Foundation. And I would also say, say that um, back to this question about how do we continue the authenticity of Robert Trent Jones Sr., my dad has gone to great pains to educate us in his style and to spend time with him. And it's one of the reasons that we're here today with you all, is to really see the work that was done in his later career. Or for me, I have never been to Ross Bridge before. I've been to many other parts of the trail. But I think that, that we have a continuing education sort of mandate within our company in that regard. And Jay spent 12 years, or 10, 11 years with us, sorry Jay, uh, and, and experienced that as well. So I hope that answers the question. And maybe I sound too, uh, too excited, so I'm going to pass this over. So, so I want to say something about where we are. Um, you talk about the, you know, the changing design patterns from the 1920s with Stanley Thompson, the pre-World War II, the post-World War II, the, renovation, the remodelings, the open championships. And this was basically his, like, Opa's work, Bobby, and so we as a family are very grateful to you and your friendship for my dad and your collaboration. And, and, and believe me, I'm sitting in Hawaii and people come and say, have you, you know the Robert Trent Jones Trail? <laughs> I said, yeah, that's my dad. And so, you know, so, so we make us proud and we appreciate that and, and uh, thank you for your support. I think from a golf architectural point of view, this has hopefully been somewhat educating. Um, Jay is a, was a very important member of our team for many years. And the, the, the beauty of golf architecture is ever evolving. There's always another game to play. When you wake up tomorrow, there's another game to play. And there's another course to be built. And, and all those who love golf architecture are going to do just that. Yeah, I, I want to get a question or two, but I just will interject. Tomorrow's course maybe for me, and I hope it'll turn out to you, is, is really a special course to go visit. Alpine Bay was a course that Mr. Jones did in the early 70s. And his son Reese worked on it with him. Roger Rulich worked, worked on it with him. Uh, Neil Fraser was a shaper on it. Neil's going to be there. It's a course that's had a very bad history. I mean, there the, was kind of a shyster investor that first got it started. It was going to be 36 holes. The course is, you know, the second course closed almost as soon as it opened. The first course closed down for a number of years and just got, it just grew like, you know, the wild until a group of local men and women up in near, not just east of Birmingham, decided that the, it was a course that they loved, dearly loved when they played it and they bought it. Uh, and they're, wor they're working it on a shoestring. The reason I wanted us to play it was because there's only two courses that Jones did that are in Alabama that are prior to the trail courses. Uh, Turtle Point, which, how many of you played Turtle Point? Was it worth playing? Yeah. And I hope you feel the same way about Alpine Bay. The thing is, Alpine Bay is not going to be in great condition. We're not playing it because we think it's going to be a top 100 course. It, it, but it, the bones of the course... The bones of the course are classic Robert Trent Jones Sr., and they're really good. And if you can see past some of the conditioning issues and see what the course could be, uh, it's going to need a massive infusion of capital to be it. But if you can appreciate what it can be, then you're really going to see something nice tomorrow. And so I just ask you to sort of keep that in mind as you, we move out to play the course. Uh, is there a question or two? Yeah, uh, I know it's a late evening. Let's have some questions. Yeah, let's have a couple of questions. I'll bring the microphone over for you, for one thing, just to stretch my legs a little bit. I've, I didn't walk from tea to, tea to green far enough. 
How are you doing? I just have a, a, a couple of real quick questions. One, what, what was the original length of the course of Ross Bridge? This is what you saw today. It was, it was 8,200 from the back. Originally? Yeah. Originally. And it was built in 19 or 2001? 2002. Okay, thank you. But again, I mean, the point was not that you want to play it at 8,200, but you want to, you know, one of the things Mr. Jones, I think, was big on was having flexibility in design. And I think he was <laughs> way ahead of his time here. And he wanted, he wanted a par four to be able to play it at 300 to 500 yards. In other words, whatever. He wanted to be able to set it up different every day because he wanted to make people think. It wasn't about just going out there and using brute strength. He wanted, he wanted to mess with your mind. And, uh, and that's how he did it. Thank you. Uh, second qu quick question is uh, for both of the Jones, uh, Jones um, folks is, other than the Jones family, who do you like as the best designer or architect? Glad I didn't ask that question. <laughs> I thought mine were going to be ornery. Very easy answer. You just say the guy to your right. The guy to your left. You know, it depends on how I play that day. Um, in terms of volume of work, Donald Ross was of the so-called class. They're very, very prolific. In terms of um, my father's competitor, Dick Wilson was active in, in that era of time. And uh, in terms of now, I can't really speak to that. We're too too close to it. Uh, I, I myself uh, am a great admirer of Tillinghast because I, I'm a member of Tillinghast course. And I think not only are his, his courses quite aesthetic, the bunkers are in the right place for a missed shot. I'm, I'm not a great fan of McKenzie's because his bunkers are in the wrong place. They're extremely beautiful, and he had great land to work with. I'm not against them. I mean, I'm not saying anything negative, but I think he's, I think Tillinghast was a superior architect. Okay, we've got a question here. Mr. Joneses, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm thankful to be able to play Coda de Casa, Mr. Jones, but uh, beautiful 36 holes in uh, Orange County, California. Um, just. Tell the crowd a little bit about the difference between East Coast versus West Coast courses and maybe some of the difficulties East Coast versus West Coast or even Midwest as far as design and, and what it takes. I mean, we're pretty simple in California, Kikuyu and uh, Poana, so um, it's not that easy all, all over the place. Well, that, that, is, that is a great question. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get too much into the technical aspects of grass, but half of golf architecture is unseen. It's the irrigation systems, the drainage, soil mechanics, choice of grasses. Just as half of the structure here is unseen, the electric wires have to light these lights, for example. Now, so golf architecture is more than what you see and play and evaluate. It's, it does it work so that all good, one of your criteria in your ratings is um, conditioning. Well, if we architects don't give them, and the owners don't give them the uh, uh, irrigation systems and the other elements, then the conditioning Conditioning is a function of what's subterranean, so that's we'll put that aside. In terms of East Coast and West Coast, I think the United States is basically four separate uh, geographic pl places: New England, rocky, forested, granitic; the South, lots of rain and big forests; um, the I would say the prairies, open landscapes, and windy 
and the far west and Hawaii on the Pacific, um, dry, arid, and um, so on. But in general, I would say that one of the, the biggest concerns I personally have for golf architecture and golf in general, the game, the whole game, is water, the lack of it. Uh, this is, I just was with Rand Jarris, who was at the USGA, just leaving them now, and he said, did, we've had studies made at the University of Minnesota in which we've calculated that in the West, it's 17,000 uh, gallons of water per round. We don't have 17,000 gallons of water per round since the Colorado River is drying up in the West. So H.L. Mencken kind of said it best, the curmudgeon that he was for the Baltimore Sun. Uh, he, he said in the 30s, the West begins where the rainfall ends. And so in the, in the West, it's all about um, open landscapes and big landscapes and lack of water. In the East, it's about forests and too much water. So uh, the architecture is technical. You don't want bunkers that'll wash out in Alabama and Georgia, so you don't, they're relatively flat, flattish bunkers. In the West, you can have face bunkers. Or, so the, you, know, you have to adjust to the climate and, 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 and your resources. But you've, you've asked a very, very, I think we're gonna see major changes without water in the West, um, and I don't know what's gonna happen in the East. Okay, one more question. Yeah, so you made the uh, assertion earlier that there's really no classic era of golf architecture, um, but I would say in the present, you know, last 10 years, 20 years, a lot of the work that has been done uh, by your father um, has sort of been reversed. If you look at that U.S. Open slide, a lot of those courses have had work done by other people, often getting rid of your father's work there. Um, so it seems that the trend's sort of gone in the other direction. Do you think that there are things that sort of the present trends are missing about your father's work or certain tenets of his architecture that have been sort of neglected or underappreciated in the last 10 to 20 years? Well, that's a, that's a multi-leveled question. Um, the, you know, the, 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 uh, to answer the first part of the question, the, the, I'm not against the classic era, it just is a different painting. Um, I'm not against Picasso because he puts noses and strange near ears, it's just a different piece of art, you know? Um, it's just, it, it, there are different things. But in golf architecture, it's not, it, is, it can be an art form or can just be a field where you play golf. And most of the courses are, are the latter. Remember, most courses in the east are square or rectangular in shape because they're quarter sections of land. That's how land was sold. And it's different here because these are public lands. And so they could spread out over the landscape. And there was a lot more land in Alabama, to, as you pointed out, to, to exploit and to use than, say, Ohio or the upper Midwest. That's one question. In terms of the remodeling of the remodeling, I call that fresco architecture. And by that I mean every priest in, in, worth his salt in every church that I've been into in Italy, and I've built three courses in Italy, had a very special place and a fund from the Pope to do a fresco. And he would do this beautiful fresco to bring people in to enjoy the, the art of the, of the church and pray or whatever uh, ceremonies they had. And then another priest would come and he would, he would go over and put uh, plaster over it and do another fresco with another artist. And that's what's going on now. Now you could take a fresco and make it much better but it's very hard to go back and find the fresco underneath it. It's gone, and it's particularly gone in golf architecture. Once you bring a bulldozer there, the actual hours that it took to shape the look of the bunker is gone. So I, I think in that sense, it's, um, um, 
of a concern. That doesn't mean that the new fresco can't be better. If Michelangelo came and did a fresco, I'd probably like it better than what was there before. But there are not that many Michelangelos around. I'll answer any, any other questions, and we can hang out and talk after this if you want. First of all, I enjoyed meeting each and every one of you on the course. I learned as much from you as maybe you might have learned from me and Trent today. I learned uh, how to say golf in Dutch. You know, um, I learned uh, uh, women are happy that I took care of them, that my father took care of their ladies' teeth, but he did love the women. And he, and he did, um, and, and uh, I learned that, uh, you know, you play a wide variety of different styles and you, and uh, yet, you know, you have different points of view. Is it about the shot making? Is it about the layout? You, you're not all on the same page. Is it about par threes? I learned, I learned the rating versus par threes versus par fours versus five, five. I think that's all good. This endless discussion keeps our game alive. And I'm, I'm grateful to you to have had that chance to participate with you in person. Okay. Well, thanks. Thank you, panel. Thank you, Bobby Vaughn, Bob Jones, Jay Blossie, Trent Jones. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.